Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. My name is A.L. Levy, and my guest today is Devin Scheidaker, who is a guitar player and songwriter best known for his work with the Acacia Strain and Oceano before that. And throughout a decade of playing with the Acacia Strain, Devin has been on six albums and two EPs and has a ton of tour time to show for it. Also, in 2019, Devin started playing Balaguer guitars, and soon after that became an A&R for the company, helping tons of musicians get in with the company. I'll stop talking. Let's do this. Devin Scheidaker, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. You started playing symphonic percussion, which I want to talk to you about because that's what my dad majored in in college before he veered off and decided to become a conductor. That's like his big passion is percussion. So I haven't met that many orchestral percussionists. I don't know if I'd go so far to say I was a symphonic percussionist. I was in symphonic band in middle school, which was for me, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And I really, like, I wanted to be a drummer. I wanted to be like, it was my dream when I was younger to be a studio drummer. When I got into high school, we had jazz band, and I was like, okay, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to play drum set in jazz band, and they basically were like, you can be in marching band, or you can be in marching band, concert band, and jazz band, but you can't be in just jazz band. And I was like, well, I don't want to do that. That's too much, because at that point, I was starting to focus more on drum set. I wanted to like have my own band and all that stuff, so I'm like, I don't have, I'm not going to have time for that if I have three different bands I'm you know, obligated to practice with, with at school. And then shortly after that, I had, uh, you know, been jamming with some friends on drums, but I'd been playing guitar for a few years at that point too. And one of my friends, Rob, he was, you know, he's playing some riffs. I'm like, I'll oh, try it like this. And I kept showing him stuff. And the next day at school, he was kind of talking shit. And he's like, I don't know why he's so focused on being a drummer. He's a better guitar player. And like, that was like, it clicked. And I was like, Oh, maybe I should focus on that. Was that shit talking? Or the truth. Overhearing the conversation, it was like, he sucks as a drummer. Like, it, it was a little bit. A little bit of both. It, it's weird. I, I'm just wondering, because like, sometimes I've noticed like when people give me critiques like that, or have given me critiques like that, like, why aren't you focusing on this? Yeah. Like, you're not that good at this, or not good enough at this. You should focus on this. I'm like, fuck you, man. But then I think about it, and I'm like, why did I get so mad? I got mad because they're right. Yeah. And I'm glad I overheard that, because it was... uh Obviously, the, I made the, the right call there by switching my focus. Though, I got to say, man, the guitar players I've met with a percussion background tend to have a leg up on guitar players who don't, just because, you know, right-hand work tends to be where guitar players are the weakest. Just like, even if they're good at, like, keeping time in general, like, keeping pocket is very difficult for guitar players. And I've just noticed from like recording or playing with people that drummers that then learn to play guitar and, you know, either become a, a guitar playing drummer or just a guitar player who used to be a drummer, just their feel is just so much better. It's just so much better. Yeah. And I think that comes from like, I look at rhythm playing like from an actual rhythmic standpoint where Obviously, I need to be on time. And even with things like vibrato, like, I don't want to just do the Kirk Hammett thing, which, you know, I love Kirk Hammett, but the vibrato is all over the place. So I'm like, I want to bend in time and to pitch mm -hmm. and have it make sense. And the same goes with just the right hand where it's 
all like just figuring out patterns. Like I can do the count in my head without really even thinking about it anymore, just because I had so long where I was, I had to do that for band. Do you look at the right hand like a percussion instrument? Oh, absolutely. Whenever I'm giving lessons and somebody's wanting to improve their, their picking hand technique, I always have the leg up with them when they have, because I've had a, key, a few students who are like, oh, I'm primarily a drummer. And I'm like, perfect. And like with a lot of the alternate picking stuff, I'm like, look at it kind of like, you know, double strokes where you're all the down picking, like you can alternate pick twice as fast as that because you're already doing the movement. Just let the pick hit on the way back up and they're like, oh, that makes sense. And then all of a sudden they're just flying on their strings and things like, the, you know, the molar technique where you can kind of like do like that whip motion with your arm and you can really give your muscles a break. Things like that really like, especially like, like, you know, like Metallica type riffs, that kind of stuff really helps. Something I started incorporating into my playing recently, it's like a swivel almost with my thumb and index finger of the pick. Uh, Miles Dimitri Baker, the people who have seen do it through Riff Hard or just in life have been this dude Spiro Ducias, who is just like so fucking fast. It's like, it's like, how is this possible? Dean Lamb from Arkspire does it. They're fast as fuck. Miles Dimitri Baker was doing it. And at first I was like, what, how do you do that? It's like this rotation thing to where that's assisting with the movement. And then over the past several months, it just started happening and Spiro saw a video of it and was like, dude, you're doing the rotation should like hone in on that. And as I've honed in on it, I've noticed that, and I'm not trying to be like a, like a virtuoso like them, but I'm trying to do what I do as best as I can. I've noticed that my ceiling goes up and I have spoken to drummers about, you know, how do they play double kicks so fast? Like, or how do they blast so fast? And almost always there's some sort of efficiency. Not, I don't want to say trick because it's not a trick. Like there's an efficiency technique in there, whether it's how they, like with Krim, I know that he like rotates his feet in this interesting way to allow him to play a double kick like that. Like they're not just muscling it out, almost never just muscling it out. There's like a ceiling on that. And I think it's, it's the same with guitar. Yeah, there's definitely there's a ceiling on that. And when you are just doing brute force to get that speed out, you hit a wall very quickly with fatigue. Like with my rhythm playing, obviously, like Acacia Strain, we're not a band where you have to be flying all the time, almost never. No, but your shit is tight and tricky. Thank you. But when I'm like at home playing very fast stuff, like my so my wrist movement, it's like almost like a rotation, like almost like you're revving like a throttle on a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And then I, I have like the Hetfield grip with the three fingers, but there's that little bit of finger movement in there too. And if it gets much faster, then I start to do more of a rotation, like almost like EVH when he's doing just like the single note lead stuff where he's just like flying and they all kind of work together to where I'm none of the muscles in my arm are being used primarily. They're all like moving around. So nothing gets tired. And it's very minimal movement, but I'm able to get a lot of power out of it because there's so many things moving. So it's like a cumulative thing. Yeah. I've had students where they do like this wrist movement where it's just like up and down and yeah, your wrist doesn't want to do that. No. Like you can, there's a ceiling on that definitely. And you can't, there's not much power you can put into it. So you can't like, you can't get power out of it unless you start moving your arm. And then that's even more fatigue you get quickly. 
and you lose control that way because the the more you're moving when you, once you start to build speed you can't keep that movement up you lose control of it you know i think that the modern day because of the internet uh those types of things like the efficiency of motion techniques that allow people to go past those barriers are much more widely known because you can just watch people do it and people talk about it. Yeah. And I remember coming up and having Emil in the band, like he does that stuff, but like he wasn't talking about it much. No one was really talking about it much. Like there was people spoke about economy of motion and trying to not have like huge movements, but like down to the specifics of where the rotations happen and all that, no one was really talking about it. And so I think a few people back in the day, like either they figured it out naturally is that they just naturally did it and then just happened to like be a person who wanted to get really fast. Yeah. Like it was just kind of like a, a coincidence that like they naturally did this rotation thing also happened to be like dedicated to practicing or like they were kind of already going there or happened to have the right teacher. But overall it was very, very rare. And I think that, the reason that I see so many great young virtuosos, like if you just scroll on Instagram, it's it's mind blowing. I, I don't think it's because of any like magical evolution that's happened in 10 years. I think it's straight up this info that we're talking about right now. You can go look at it and you can go see a bunch of people doing it and then emulate it very, very easily. Whereas before you had to do detective work. Yeah. When, when, I mean, when I started playing, YouTube didn't exist. And then when it finally came about, there wasn't all of a sudden a million guitar videos. It was hard to find information or you'd find stuff on people talking on forums. And as I get older, you find out most of these people don't know what the hell they're talking about. Yes. All they do is post on the forum. So it's like, I, I had a feel of like what seemed right to me, what was the most comfortable because from drumming, it was kind of the same thing where mm -hmm. like, I didn't want to do things that were hard to do. And I understood like certain techniques don't work. They don't scale as you get faster. And it was the same with guitar. And I always had, when, when we talk about ceilings, I, I think it's important to have a ceiling that is like much higher than what you're trying to do so that all that stuff you're trying to do, you can just do it with ease and do it perfectly and flawlessly, like, and keep it very, very tight. I agree. You hit on something, though, I'd like to talk about that is not spoken about very often that I've thought about, which is, so it is true that certain techniques don't scale, but I really do think that there, even if a technique is not scalable, it might be the right technique for that lower tempo. Like, oh, absolutely. So if you are using your arm more on a certain type of chord or uh, to emphasize something or just like a certain type of riff, it just sounds better that way. It might not be applicable 50 BPM up, but it's perfect at that tempo. And I think that a modern pitfall is people who are trying to apply efficiency techniques to everything. And so, and you get stuff that sounds very weak and kind of lifeless. Exactly. I think that's why you get a lot of the lifeless sound is people are so dedicated to the efficiency that they apply it to everything instead of like just applying it where appropriate. Yeah. And when it comes to like our music, we have a lot of stuff that the efficiency thing is not necessary. So there's a lot of stuff like I'm putting a lot of just like meat behind it. And I think the thing with me and 
Mike and Griffin and Tom, who was in the band, like we all have that knowledge of when it's time to switch gears and like, okay, we're, we're moving up here. So I need to start playing a little bit more efficiently because I can't, you know, the big movements to like the live show where you're just, you know, going in, you don't want to get worn out for the rest of the show. And also like, you're going to be sloppy if you're trying to do those big movements to play like this kind of technical, like alternate picked part. Is that something that you like, consciously figured out or just kind of kind of just intuitively figured it out i think it was a little bit of both like there it, it started to happen intuitively and then there was more like okay i know like once i start to do these kind of things this is when i need to use this technique this kind of thing like because even even with grip like i use so pick wise i use uh like your yellow like 73 delarin picks pretty mm-hmm. standard but I like that they're a little bit rigid and they have a little bit of give to them too. They're not super hard. And that's because I do that three finger thing. If I grip a little bit tighter, the pick gets a little bit more stiff because it bends a little bit. And when it gets to some of that more aggressive stuff, if I grip a little bit tighter, I can get more attack out of the strings without having to really like dig in too much harder. And that also help, helps with that economy thing while also getting power out of, you know, the strings without having to completely change up how I'm picking. That makes sense. I'm curious to how this translates into tone. Okay. So you weren't in the band yet, but I remember the first tour we did with you guys, I think it was 2007, Jafar Cowboy, you guys, Cy Opus, if I, if my memory serves me right. And I remember Chris Arp. Yeah, dude, Chris Arp. Genius, man. What a nut, like a musical nut. I don't understand. Yeah, it's some of that stuff is just crazy. I remember seeing the video of him like trying out at a mall for Limp Biscuit and Yeah. What he's playing, you're like, they're not gonna pick you. It's insane, but they're not gonna pick you. No, of course not. But people should know about him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he is uh something else. But one thing I noticed was DL's tone was so damn devastating. Like it made basically every other guitar player on the tour just feel like insignificant, I guess, because it was just so devastating. And I remember he had that crank, four crank cabinets and some crank heads. And basically that's it, a noise gate, nothing crazy. And um, so I'm wondering, so that type of tone that I associate the Acacia strain with is that something you had to learn how to do or were you already very tone conscious? Like where did that conversation come in about that kind of tone you guys have? Well, I think, you know, when, when I came into the band, you know, it was me and Richie, we had both been in bands previously. Like I was at Oceano and then some bands before that. And so we'd already been playing low tune stuff and Acacia strain prior to that had, had been an influence on us and we'd seen them play with DL and I'd also seen them play with guys that were filling in, like Tony and Tim and, you know, everybody else that filled in from like 2009 to when we joined. And they didn't have, the, like the guys that were filling in didn't have the, like the tone conscious thing. So when we were, when we came in, it was like, we have to make this band sound like what they're supposed to sound like. It's really finding things that keep the low end tight because that's the first thing that goes like these, you know, that you see bands that tune down really low. And there's bands now tuning way lower than us. Like, and our lowest tuning is drop F. And I know bands much lower than that. And 
a few of them can pull it off, but there's a lot of them that it's just like, it's, it's not working because you don't have, you're not doing the things that need, you need to do to keep this all tight because it's very easy to lose control of it and have it get really muddy. I mean, that's like the, I remember seeing an interview years ago with uh monkey from corn where they were talking about how they were playing in a standard and they were like, Oh, you go any, go any lower, lower. And it's just mud. And at the time, I think that that's just, they couldn't go lower with what they had. They, there wasn't any way to keep it tight. And now like technology, it just keeps stuff keeps like going and going. And it's easier now to, with the information that's available online too, to learn from other people, it's easy to figure out how to keep that low end really tight. Like for us, it's for the live tone. Um, now we're running direct from our Kempers, but we still have cabs for stage volume. And it's since I joined the band, like the first thing we did was buy the, uh, orange ppc 412 hp they're the high powered orange cabs that have the celestian g12 k 100s in them so it's a 400 watt cab um back in the day i learned from uh, josh travis had those and he was playing eight string stuff and a really weird tuning at the time with uh, tony danza and those cabs just they sounded punishing he was using like angle heads which also sounded great for what he was doing but he's like it's the cabs these cabs can handle everything I'm throwing at them without like breaking up too soon. They're not, you know, the cabs are very compact. So they just push that low end out really hard. It doesn't have a lot of space to bounce around. And so we got those and it's just the stage, even as, as just stage volume, just cabs for that, they still sound crushing and it's because they can handle it. So step one, get the right cabs, get with the right speakers. Yeah. Cause there's a lot, you know, I love a vintage 30. That's what, you know, that's the standard they don't handle like really low tunings that well in my experience they can do it okay but they're not going to get you to that like that bar that's been set by like the really heavy bands yeah they're more great i think for like drop c oh yeah and like you're like non-ridiculous seven string tunings or something right yeah once you start to go below g or something even below a honestly like they're just not optimal for that. Yeah, and cab construction is so important too once you get into those tunings where you know I I've, I've played a lot of shows where you just have to use whatever cabs available and I couldn't tell you how many times I've used like a Mesa oversized which is a a wonderful beautiful cab. They sound great for certain things, but for really low tuning, they're so big the low end bounces around in that cab. You lose a lot of that definition. The original Doth tuning for like the our older stuff was drop C. Now we're using sevens and eights, but like our six string tuning still like I scale it to where you could play any of our songs by just add a string. You can still play every song on a seven or an eight because the six string part still will always remain in drop C. And what I've noticed is that for sure the stuff that sounds phenomenal in that like 2006 tuning it just doesn't work like that like you have to rethink your approach to rhythm tone and my my guess is dl was just had already conquered that back then and he wasn't doing the vintage 30 5150 with uh you know with the tube screamer thing he wasn't doing that yeah and i think i you know i can't i don't know exactly what was in the i want to say that those uh cranks i want to say they had eminence speakers in them i might be completely wrong there but i in my head i think that's what they had 
You're probably right. I don't remember either, but I what I do remember is they're not vintage 30s. I remember that clearly. So I remember at one, I had one of those Vader cabs that had Eminence Legends in it. Mm-hmm. Sounded terrible recorded, but it was a big cab with Eminence Legends, and they, they, it was loud, and it could fill a room when you're playing, like, you know, those VFW hall shows back in the day. And it was cool for that. And when I was in Oceano, we recorded with Zeus right after Acacia Strain recorded Wormwood. And he was like, we're not going to deal with these. But like we, we we tried them. Those cabs were terrible. And we did. We basically used the same Wormwood setup, which was a 5150 with a Noah's Ark 808 clone, you know, tube screamer into a Marshall 1960A. Zeus was very adamant. He's like, this, the cab just they you can hear everything in the cab just it sounds like it's going to explode because it can't handle this tuning stuff really well and it sounds good but you've also got everything else that's happening with the mix and post-production and all that kind of stuff so it's never just that setup you're you're hearing everything else that he's doing as well but yeah but uh you know i gotta say though like even if you're just messing with amp sims or whatever the it's like the single biggest factor in that tone is going to be the IR and the cab when it comes down to it, like, and I've done lots of, lots of, uh, shootouts and URM has a whole course we did with Andrew Wade on guitar production. And there's like an hour or two worth of just shootouts, shootouts of like everything, like picks strings, like, cab height like cab on a cinder block not on a cinder like everything and my experience plus everything in that course is that the single biggest factor in a guitar tone besides the player is the cab i mean everything else matters it all matters but like if if you want to drastically change the tone i mean like change it by like 60 percent or something that's that's what you do that's the thing that will that will alter it the most yeah i mean even when i when i first started using amp sims and all that just to record at home even back in the day using like pod farm changing the cab did way more than messing with the amp and the knobs and all that stuff it was just like which one of these sounds best and then i would go from there to kind of dial in a tone but finding that like the right cab is important and there's a lot of guys that just Oh, yeah, it's got speakers in it. Okay, let's use it. Or that looks cool. And it's you got to have the right speakers and the right construction and just especially for recording. Or that person uses it, so it's got to work for me. Yeah, completely different players. Yeah, huge fallacy right there. That whole the tone is in the hands thing is very, very true. But the thing is the hands still need to go through something. So like, it's not like, like there's a lot of truth to the tone is in the hands thing and you know the use your ears arguments and all that like it's all true but like i think that like where that there's a ceiling on how true it is just because it's not you're not listening to hands acoustically it's going through something put james hetfield through jimmy hendrix's rig and then put jimmy through james's rig and see like that neither of them neither of those things is going to work no like they're they're going to play fine but it's not going to sound like you'd want it to It'll sound like them, but it's not going to sound like you want it to. Like, you'll be able to tell that it's them, but it's not going to be ideal at all, or not even close to ideal. It's going to be disappointing, I think. So I do think that the gear choice is super important. The only thing that I'll say is 
if people are prioritizing that over their playing, then that's, I think that's where the problem becomes, in my opinion, with gear is uh, people who put that ahead of the thing that is ultimately the most important, which is the the human. So it's kind of like a hierarchy, right? Like I think that number one is the human. Yeah. There's a lot of people that do that too. It's frustrating to see sometimes because there will be people that like some new gear will come out and they're, they'll be the first ones to buy it. And they're also the first ones to just dump all over it because it's not making them play better because they're not realizing yeah. the only person that can make them play better is them. And they're like, oh, well I bought the new, this signature thing from this artist and it's I don't sound like them. Yeah, it's like, well, you're sure not that person. Yeah, man, it's funny. I used to have a tone store, like, in 2015, and one of the first tone packs we put out was a John Brown tone pack. It was literally just his presets from straight out of his Line 6. Um, it was, like, exactly what he used. He didn't make presets specifically for the tone pack. He just exported them. So nothing different. I tried playing through it. I sounded like total shit. And we got some, you know, some people saying like, this is not, these aren't his presets. Like, there's no way. It's like, yeah, dude plays like a fucking beast. That's why they sound the way they sound. It's true with mixers also, man. Like people will buy plugins or outboard gear or whatever, thinking that it's going to solve their problems. And then their work ends up sounding identical. Yeah. It's like the same person. You, you, got, you have new tools. Like if I get... If I'm building a house and I get like a better drill, like I'm still going to build the house the same way. I'm not just going to be like, this teaches me a whole new thing. They're, it's all just tools and you have to learn how to properly use them and how to like let them make you better, but you can't, they're not just going to do it automatically. No, definitely not. Before I forget, actually, I want to just go back to one thing we were talking about before. I'm curious, do you see any parallel between paradiddles and right hand guitar work? Yeah, I do. Because there, there is a lot of things where most alternate picking stuff for me, I kind of think about, you know, what once I figure out what the part is that I'm going to play, I kind of think, am I starting this with an upstroke or a downstroke? Because that'll affect how I land and start it over again. And sometimes there's things where it's easier to kind of work in like alternate picking, but then like two downs or two ups to make a certain pattern fit. And that's all things that come from paradiddles and different rudiments where for those that don't know like paradiddle is when you're playing drums and you're going right left right right left right left left and kind of thinking about that with your picking hand is like down up down down up down up up you you can work out those kind of things kind of play paradiddles and rudiments on your strings and you just get a lot more control over that right hand to what you're able to do you have less things that trip you up because that's a thing with especially some kind of some weird stuff especially when you're working string skipping and with alternate picking and all that kind of stuff sometimes being able to throw in two down picks in something that would traditionally just be down up down up down up down up it can help you kind of overcome like a weird part absolutely actually we just put out a bunch of lessons with jason richardson on string skipping how he does those like insane string skip arpeggios and parts and a lot of it comes down to his picking patterns and he does that a lot, like two downs in a row or three downs in a row, or it's like, it's not just straight up alternate picking. Yeah. It's whatever helps you play the part easier. And like we talked about before, when you're learning it, whatever helps you like scale it to the speed you want to play it at. And especially when it comes to a pattern, a part you're going to repeat, you have to think about how you're ending that and where, what position that puts your hand in so that you can start over again. And sometimes 
like I want to end with an up. So like I'm bringing my hand back up to start and go down again. I've noticed too that uh, some things that might seem more difficult because they're confusing at first are in the end, the path of least resistance. So I think that sometimes you got to be prepared to like hurt your brain a little bit in order to get a pattern down that ultimately makes the most sense. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I tell anybody when they're trying to figure out a part and they're like struggling with it, I'm like, flip it. If you're starting it with a down pick, start with an up pick and see if that makes it any easier. And if that feels a little bit easier, then go with that and then find the spots, which part is difficult, like in there. And if there's another part that's difficult, think about the first part as a pattern and then do the, the next part, like break it into two patterns and then flip it again. And it might work for you. It's one of those things where I think people are resistant to trying that for no reason other than they've like trained themselves to think that a downbeat on a one is a down and the ands or whatever are all upstrokes. Like people have that kind of like, yeah, it's like wired in or something. And so the idea of beginning a, a phrase or a measure on an upstroke, I think is is just like, it's tough for people to get their head around first. and But I think once they free themselves of that and realize that you can do whatever you want, yeah, it gets a lot easier. Like I, I have so many parts that start with an upstroke, just there's, you know, a lot of like the, the eight string stuff that's very kind of like mashuga-y, like the banana, like that kind of stuff. A lot of it, I'll start with an upstroke because it puts me in a position to go to the next notes that are lower notes and be able to downpick those. And it makes the whole thing feel more powerful and easier to play. Go strategize this stuff. Yeah. And it's, it sounds complicated when you, it's something you don't do, but I don't really think about it. It's just like, I try it one way and then I just try it the other and it's whatever. I was like, okay, this one, this one feels better. And if it doesn't feel better, then you just, you go back to doing it the way you were and you figure it out. It's one of those things. It sounds complicated if you've never done it before. Um, because it sounds like a lot of mental work or a lot of like rewiring of old habits. And there might be some truth to that, but all you got to do is spend a little time with it. And even if it's tough at first, like give it a week or two, and then you'll just start thinking that way and you just start naturally, naturally doing it. Yeah. If you have a lot of bad habits, you're really trying to rewire. One of the best things you can do, like if you've got a lot of stuff, you're like, I know that this is wrong with my playing like this, 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 they need changing. Don't play guitar for a while. Let everything kind of like loosen up because it's also, it's possible to like kind of brute force your way too much to not being able to change those things. Like still to this day, I have things I want to change. But uh, when my daughter was born, I didn't play guitar for like three months. And when I came back, I was like, everything was loose enough. And like, I, I could still play fine, but like I wasn't as tight as I was three months prior. And it gave me the space to like, okay, I can really work on some of this stuff while building that tightness back up and fix the things I wanted to fix because they've, those have loosened up as well. Like if that makes sense. It makes total sense. When I decided to start playing again after my hiatus, everything was gone. It was just gone. Yeah. And so I don't want to say that I had to start from scratch because it's definitely not scratch. Yeah. You still have the knowledge that was there. Just the, the muscle memory goes. Dude, even my knowledge was rusty though, but still, it's still in there. Cobwebs needed to be dusted off. But the thing that was great about it was when I took the hiatus, I had hit these bad habit ceilings, like these ceilings caused by bad habits that I just could not 
I just couldn't get past them. And this time around, like different era, different um, information around, and then those habits are gone. It was possible to just create new ones. And I don't know that how easy it would have been to just do that while already playing. And I remember Misha had to completely change his picking technique. He talked about it on the podcast, but he he did that while he was playing without taking a break. And he said it's like the hardest thing he's ever had to do. Yeah, it's it's difficult. I I had to do that in uh, 2010. We were, when we Oceana recorded with Zeus. I had like my I used to hold my pick just like really fucked up and weird to where it looked almost like the Marty Friedman technique, except I wasn't like yeah. all the way near the neck pickup. But my hand was turned weird and the pick was completely perpendicular with the strings when I was hitting it. So I was kind of just slicing through and I could play really fast like that, but I didn't have a lot of control. And, you know, being a self-taught player, there wasn't anybody to say this is right or wrong. And when we recorded with Zeus, he's, he says, you got to stop doing that. And I was like, what? I didn't realize I was doing anything wrong. And he's like, here, play, play this riff. And he tracked it really quick and played it back. And you can hear like all the, like the pick kind of slicing the strings. And he's like, now play it with the pick, you know, parallel to the strings and i did and i was like oh i'm an idiot so i had to like just sit and we're in the studio so i'm like i have to fix this now so i had to very much on the fly like adapt and get this picking technique figured out a bit better so now i'm like i'm still not fully parallel i kind of i'm i would say i'm at like a what i'd say 22 and a half degree like in between 45 degrees like there's a slight angle so when i'm alternate picking like you know instead of being like this it's like that a little bit. So I, I still get the attack without that slice. Yeah. That's life-changing though. A good producer will do that. That's part of a producer's job is to help with those types of things, man. So I remember, well, I'll say this. I think that one of the hardest things for a player or a engineer, whatever, is when you're self-taught, you don't have a good frame of reference always. Like even if you are watching stuff online like for instance with mixing if you don't have a good mentor like yeah you can get good but like for instance you might not understand just how bad your listening environment is without someone helping you understand or without having the experience of going to a place that's a good listening environment so i've noticed with guitar players who have weird pick technique as in not good pick technique that like leads to bad tone or like lots of like weird noises oftentimes if they're self-taught they just won't know that they're doing that and so they'll tell you that they're tight and they'll tell you that they've been practicing and they think that they're doing good because maybe with how they play they are doing better than they were maybe a month ago so like relative to their own level they have been improving and practicing, but they can't even hear. They're just not aware of that, of like uh, what the difference would be or what they're doing wrong. And I've noticed sometimes, man, like on the spot, helping someone like something like that, like change their pick angle, helping them hear the difference. It's like they can change everything immediately, like on the spot. Like they'll never be able to accept the way they used to play Again, because now they can hear exactly what problems it's causing. 
Yeah, because when you're when you're hearing it in real time, like while you're doing it, you're focused on actually playing. Yeah, it's inaccurate. Those little things, like you're not gonna notice them. And the same thing comes with like playing with a click. It's like people that don't do it regularly when they're trying to do it, they're e- always either like ahead of or behind the click. Usually, they're playing too fast because they're anticipating it too much because they don't have that like internal like all right, I'm used to playing on time thing mm-hmm. going on. I mean, even even for me, there's times. When we were recording the last record, there was one part where I remember I was I just started to get that like ear fatigue where I'd been playing guitar and hearing sound too long that day to where I know it was like a consistent tempo this whole part, but in my head I could hear it, it sounded like it was going faster and slower and I like couldn't mm-hmm. keep up with it and I'm like I know that that's not happening, but I have to back away from this for a bit because I'm worn out. Yeah, man, it's our perception of time and sound is very uh, malleable, and it's a lot like uh, it's lo- a lot like when a pilot has the artificial horizon on the plane. They're inside a cloud, and uh, their senses are telling them which way is down, but the artificial horizon is saying something completely different. They have to pay attention to the artificial horizon, or they're going to crash. And it's because your your senses are not. They're not in tune with reality always. Yeah. They're, you know, the human brain and how we interpret input from ears and eyes and all that stuff. Our main point of being alive is to survive. We're not trained to hear every little imperfection. So you have to like focus on that kind of stuff. One of the most important things you can do for that is listening to your own playing back, like recording yourself and finding, okay, here, here, and here, here's where I've made mistakes or here's where I'm getting noise. How do I fix that? And when you start to make yourself aware of that, like in playback, you can start to train yourself to be aware of it when it's happening. And you can go, yeah, I'm getting a weird noise here. Let's do this. Or, you know, you're doing a take and you like, you can hear that little teeny thing, or you can tell that you went a little too fast, but you have to stop and listen back to yourself and hear where it's happening. So you can start to listen to it in real time. It makes you a better player. Just think about all the inputs you're getting when you're playing in real time. You're hearing whatever you're playing to. You're hearing yourself. The instrument is vibrating through your body. Like if yeah. you're not super loud, you might be hearing pick noise, which is a whole other thing, and whatever else is going on in the room. Right. Plus the the input from both hands of like you're playing. Yeah. Exactly. While trying to actually play correctly. So while focusing on playing correctly, there's no way with all that stuff going on that you're going to have an accurate picture of how it's going. Right. When we're young players, especially, I think we're all like a little bit more cocky. Like once you start to get kind of good and you're like, oh yeah, no, I, I nailed that. And then, you know, your producer or somebody is like, no, let's listen back. And you're, it sounds like Guitar Hero where there's all these like just honks and Yep. scrapes and just noises and you're like oh shit okay need to fix that it's very sobering it's a very uh aha kind of moment this is what i actually sound like you know we're starting to run out of time but i want to make sure that we talk about this you have two albums dropping on may 12th yes and it's enough work to do one whenever i've heard about bands doing that and i'm curious if this is accurate because since i kind of even though I haven't like hung out with you guys in a long time, I'm not entirely privy to how you operate now or anything like that. My impression of Acacia Strain has always been of a prolific 
band artistically, like where individual members are just able to output lots of stuff. And that's always just been my impression. It's a very uh, prolific group of people and also a very competent group of people. So like not surprised hearing about two records coming out, but also I just know how much work goes into one. How do you feel about doing two at the same time? Was it nuts? <clears throat> like I, I want to sit here and say that it was this crazy thing that was like, you know, some feat that we pulled off and like, it just, it really wasn't. It was. I figured. Okay. Like we, makes sense. So like you said, everybody in our band, we're all competent musicians and can, can play much further above like what goes into our songs because for us it's always been the song comes first like i get very annoyed by bands where it's just constantly just showing off like look i know all the notes you mm -hmm. know it's cool but it's it's tiring to listen to like i want i want to make something that i want to listen to and everyone else in the band is on the same page with that so when it came to doing two records we kind of had this thing where we've had like a bunch of different things that kind of influence us and we've started a long time ago to push on the walls of the box of like, you know, parameters of like what sounds like a case strain, what doesn't. I think there's bands where they try to do too much too soon. And that's when you end up with, you know, people complaining like this band changed. This sucks now. And so it's, it's important to like, you have to slowly push on the walls and be like, all right, here's what we can do, but we can do a little bit more. And then next mm -hmm. record, we can do a little bit more until like you're, you have a really big box and you can do a lot of, a lot of different things. So we've had a lot of times where we've had like doom elements and like sludge, like stoner, all that kind of stuff mixed in with like the really aggressive, you know, acacia strain, like classic sound. And there's a lot of stuff too, where like we were wanting to go where there's stuff influencing us. That's there's a lot of like power violence bands and grind and things like that, that influence as well. And we're, we're like, okay, we want to do all of this stuff but we also don't want to mash it together so much that it's like a mess to listen to. Yep. And the output, like especially just in, in demos, we were writing so much stuff and Vincent has the idea of like, let's do two separate records where we could have both of them kind of focused on both sides of what our band can do. And we'll have one that is like short, sweet to the point, And it's just, it's an ass beater the whole time. And then we'll have another side of it that is just disgusting slow and let's really just get weird with it and when it came to writing before we got to the studio i think i showed up with like 30 song demos which you know skeletons were like yes I, I might have like whatever structure to it but it's all nothing is set in stone anything can be pulled apart and we all have that understanding of the song comes first so there's never that like well i wrote this i played it this way so i wanted to say this way there's Nothing like that. And when we got in the studio, there were a few parts that got pulled out, but for the most part, we wrote everything in studio. And everyone, including Randy, who produced us and was like, he was helping us with with that whole writing process. It's We were all on the same page and everyone's ideas, there was not one bad idea. Everyone was like, oh, we should do this. And everyone's like, I was thinking the same thing. We wrote both records in a week. That's fast, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, it's it's fast, but when you're in that environment to where that's all you're doing. With the right group of people. Yeah, and the ideas are flowing and it poured out. You know, I think also coming to the table prepared, right? Like you come in with the 30 song skeletons. Yeah, we knew what we wanted everything to sound like. So when it came to like everyone's ideas coming together, that's a, 
you know, we all knew what parameters we were working within. So there was no like, well, I don't know. That sound that might be weird. Because I've also been a big proponent of like, if somebody has an idea, it costs you nothing to try it. So try it. And if it doesn't work, you're like, eh, I'm not feeling it. But we tried it. And that also makes everyone feel validated to where you're not like, oh, nobody wants to try my fucking ideas. But it's, you know, it's important to make sure everyone is heard and listened to and valued. And that just helps to keep the health of the band and the writing process intact. Yeah. I was expecting you to give me an answer kind of like this one that kind of fits what I know about the band. But I've noticed that like when everyone's on the same page, everyone's done their homework, everyone is great at what they do, then that's when it's possible to do these things that otherwise could be nightmares. I've been in both scenarios where like when we did Grave Bloom, we weren't all the way done writing when we got there. Like I had, we had to write some stuff in the studio, but it was the, I think it's 10 songs that record, those 10 songs, that was what we had. There was nothing else beyond that. And I'm happy with it, but it was just, it was me and Griffin writing everything. At the time we were at different points in life for writing this new stuff. I was at a point where like, I can sit at my computer, get everything out that I need to get out. And I'd like focus a lot on my own writing ability and doing things to improve my songwriting skill, which the most important thing you can do, which seems like a no brainer is to just keep writing. Yep. Just sit down and do it. Like if you get to that point where you have a like writer's block or roadblock, just write something. It doesn't have to be good. But even if you don't like that idea, you're not releasing it. Get the, get the bad ideas out. And the more you get those ideas out, the more you learn. I don't like doing this, 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 you stop doing it and you make room for those good ideas. Whenever people have asked me, what do you do about writer's block? And my answer is just write. Like I've gotten people who get mad at me for like, they think that I'm like condescending or I don't understand their situation or it's like, no, I get it. I get it. Like just keep writing. Like that's yeah. Write a bad song. Get, have the intention to write a bad song. See, see how write something with the intention of like, I'm going to make this as bad as possible. You're getting all those ideas out and give yourself a time limit. Like I'm going to write a bad song in one hour and just do it. Yeah. When I was, when I was, uh, doing my Twitch stream a while back, like I, every, every stream I was just writing a song. And when I had like an active audience of people watching, I couldn't just be like, oh, I'm stuck. I'm going to, I'm going to go. No, I have to finish it. So it put that pressure on me in the right way to where like at first it was difficult. And then it just, it stops happening because you're like, you have this understanding of how your own roadmap to songwriting is filled out. And you know, like here's the direct route. Here's a scenic route all that stuff, but here's all the roads that are dead ends. I just don't go down there anymore. You just kind of, you fill out that map by writing and you just know your way around town eventually. Totally. Last thing I want to talk about, you've been working A&R for Balaguer and assisting with onboarding new artists and maintaining relationships for the company. And I'm just curious, what do you find are the key factors that make people want to work with Balaguer or make Balaguer want to work with guitar players. What's really important with that when it comes to bringing on new artists to our brand or for any company, really, it's important to have a relationship with a musician where they feel supported and you feel it, it's got to be like, it works back both ways to where, you know, they're going to play your stuff and be excited about it. And that excitement is going to get more people to want to play your guitars. And you want to support them because of how excited they are. There's, there's a lot of people out there that will uh, kind of email every company they can 
and send a very generic like, yep. Hey, I'm really interested in working with your brand. And it's like, no, you're not. You're trying to get free stuff. So we're, we're good about looking for the people that want to play our stuff because they like our models or they've played some of our guitars before. And mm-hmm. we get more interest in that because they see how we support our other artists. You know, artist relations, the biggest part of it is relations. You have to have a relationship with your artists. You don't want to just be like, yeah, you're an artist and then that's it. We don't talk to you anymore. I want to be able to speak with anybody on our team regularly and get that feedback of like what you know are you liking your guitars or is there anything we can do better and by listening to your artists that's how you can continue to grow your product line and get things that are geared towards the guitar player and thankfully with our brand everybody that works there is also a player joe balaguer he shreds you know he used to play in bands back in the day but he, he picks up a guitar and he he can rip and that's just right there is important with knowing what's going to be a good thing to put out because there's a lot of the bigger brands where they're just kind of run by like corporate entities at this point it's it's solely about like looking at the trends and saying oh what can we do and it's like all right like right now you have a lot of brands that are doing all these guitars that are just kind of geared towards like the gent player as as you know it would be or whatever and it's a very there a lot of those guitars are kind of very like fad like and i don't see them sticking around in 10 years or where, or where you see those like for for resale you're like ah that thing looks like it's from like outer space and not necessarily like you know like your headless guitars but just things that have like the crazy i know what you're talking about crazy like the poplar burl and all these crazy finishes over top of that and like the resin stuff it's fine if that's what you like but i feel like that's one of those things that is going to end up being very dated to a certain time period yep and with balaguer the fact that everything is you know you can we have our select custom line where you can kind of build whatever you want that's another thing that draws people to us is you can build whatever you want and we'll be in touch the whole time like you anytime you need you have questions we're there to answer them we can help steer you into the right guitar for you based on like you know a couple conversations you find out what somebody likes what they play like what they you know all that kind of thing and mm-hmm. you're like okay well that's these kind of specs are really good for what you're looking for because there's some custom builders where people will just order whatever thing and these woods might not work really well together they might be a beautiful guitar but you get it and it just feels dead and lifeless because certain woods based on density and the construction of the guitar sometimes they just don't resonate well together and you end up with something that just it's stiff. Yeah. So it's kind of like an authentic attention to detail with where both parties want to be there. And yeah. both parties have just a, a passion for what they're creating together. Yeah. So we have like our work slack where we, you know, everyone's chatting all the time. And, and a lot of it is us discussing work things. But there's also when a new order comes in, so somebody will usually send it like, yo, check this thing out. This is going to be awesome. Like everyone's excited about the things people are ordering and what they're coming up with. And that also helps us when we do production runs. It's like, okay, what are we, we're seeing a lot of these kinds of things in the custom orders. So let's put some of those specs into our production guitars. So that'll get people excited and have something that's more affordable for somebody that can't afford to order like a full custom guitar. And it it makes it easier to, you know, pick up new artists when you have really good production instruments and you're like, Hey, I can send you one of these or we have this available. You don't have to wait for a build. Yep. Makes sense. Absolutely. Attention to detail and really, really caring that people are stoked with what they're getting goes a really long way because um, 
not everyone's like that. But Devin, I think it's a good place to stop. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to hang out. It's been a pleasure and I'm glad we got to do this. Yeah, I'm glad I got to do it as well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. Anytime. I appreciate it.